Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Trauma fogs the mirror and distorts the window. We then can't see ourselves as we are and we can't view the differences of others as anything other than harmful. This needs to change. This was said, my friends, by my guest today, who is an incredible human being that is helping countless lives heal from this nasty thing called trauma. His name is Dr. Paul Conti. And I was fortunate enough and really blessed to be able to speak with this man and talk all things trauma. And I learned something new during this conversation. I have no doubt that you guys will as well. Like I've said uh, on other podcast episodes that you've listened to, trauma is something that affects each and every one of us, some to different extents and levels, which is understandable. Uh, but we all have a trauma response at some point. Some of us may actually hide what we have been through. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to bring it up. But at times in our life, we may find that we have these little images or flashbacks or triggers that do impact us in some way, shape or form. And that is all part of trauma. Dr. Paul Conti works to bring awareness to this fact and for someone that is adept at helping people untangle complex problems, he also happens to be a psychiatrist that does a fantastic job in helping so many people uh, heal from trauma. Trauma. Dr. Conti incorporates a holistic view of each client or patient into his work, knowing the far-reaching impacts trauma can have upon the systems and communities in which an individual resides, works, and serves. I know this to be a fact in my own life. In addition to clinical treatment, he provides personal business and legal consulting services. Dr. Conti is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. He completed his training at Stanford and Harvard, where he served as chief resident, and he's got a brand new book out, which I'm very excited to share with you, and I've been reading at the moment, absolutely loving it. The foreword is by Lady Gaga, 
And Tommy Hilfiger, which is the entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist, was also part of reading this book, which is, you know, two famous individuals reading a book on trauma and promoting it, which is even better. Uh, But the book's called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. I'll make sure you know where to get a copy of that. But I highly recommend that if you are serious about healing yourself from this nasty thing called trauma, then please do yourself a favor and get a copy of this book. I've, I've read The Body Keeps a Score, You're Not Broken by all these incredible authors and I want to add this one to the list of great books that you need to read if you are serious about healing from trauma. My friends, if you do get something from this conversation, then please do share it around to your friends and your family. If you know someone that is suffering really, really bad with trauma, then this is definitely a conversation for them to listen to. They they can take control over their trauma and heal in the best ways possible. I understand that it's not easy. It is a journey. But do them a favor and even do yourself a favor by sharing this conversation with them. Don't forget to leave a rating and review over another podcast if you do love this conversation for so that you don't miss out on any more incredible conversations to come. This episode is also brought to you by the amazing Mary Ruth of Mary Ruth Organics. You can get 15% off all of Mary Ruth Organics products when you go to maryruthorganics.com and at the, at the checkout line, you type in discount code J15, that is J15 at checkout for 15% off your order. I'll make sure the links are available in the show notes below for you. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into this story box as we learn more about how we can heal our minds, bodies, and spirits from the dangers of trauma as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Paul Conti. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you having me. It was a very kind introduction, and now I have to live up to it by saying something intelligent. I'm going to do my best. Well, I have thank no you. doubt that you will, my friend. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. I mean, uh, to be thank honest you. with you, I just want to say thank you. My audience won't know this, but I'll let them know. We had a bit of an audio and internet difficulty the last time we tried connecting but dr conti was gracious enough to reorganize and and find another time so i am so so grateful for that uh trauma is something that like i said in the intro affects all of us and some it affects deeper on on deeper levels uh so i'm very interested and keen to talk about that in just a moment but before we do the very first question that i have for you dr conti is what does success look like for you Success in my life looks like my my kids being happy. Um, you know, I, I try and bring an authentic and helping presence to the world around me. And you know, I don't succeed at that a hundred percent, but I but I certainly try. And and the area of most important is them. You know, of most importance is is them. And and seeing you know the the impact of 
of trauma on people. And there are traumas that we all face throughout life, but the idea is that we can navigate them. And, and I think, you know, and, and we can achieve that even if we've had a lot of adversity in childhood, but but certainly the, 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 the better we can make childhood and sort of the laying down of a sense of self that is strong and confident, um, you know, that can overcome obstacles and overcome distress is, is so important. So I think it's, you know, success, if, success for me, most mostly what summarizes that for me is happy kids. As a, as a parent and as a doctor yourself, someone that is well-versed with trauma, I'm curious, uh, in your research, do you find that it is almost impossible to, I guess, save or keep a child from experiencing some form of trauma? Well, the, the difference there is, you know, things that are traumatic, right, we all have to experience, and it, it's not helpful to protect children against that, right? So so the the, the truth of illness, the truth of death, of course, in an age appropriate way, or the truth of setbacks, the idea that not everybody gets picked for the team, right? And not everybody wins a prize, right? So, so you know, things that we might see, oh, in some general sense are traumatic, right? Are, are just part of living and part of developing resilience and perseverance, right? The, the kind of trauma that I'm writing about, you know, the real clinical definition, right, of, of something that happens, maybe it's something acute, or maybe it's the, the, the combined, the weight over time of something chronic, or maybe it's even something vicarious that really overwhelms our coping mechanisms and, and really leaves us different moving forward. So in terms of, you know, from a neurobiological perspective, you know, our brains are different, our brains are functioning differently. And then that, that changes how we respond in terms of like psychologically, and behaviorally, you know, that the goal is to minimize that as much as we can for any of us, because that rises to the level of like true trauma that then can change us going forward. So, so certainly we wish to avoid that, including, of course, in, in children. I want to come back to childhood trauma in just a moment, but I think what would be beneficial is understanding where trauma comes from in the first place. Like, and why does it, why does it exist? This is something that might be a huge question to tackle, but do we have answers for them? Well, probably if trauma exists because, you know, we have to like be alive and make our way in a world that's, you know, doesn't make that easy, right? It's not, it's not necessarily easy now, let alone through times of human development and evolution, you know, there was a lot of traumas involved in just trying to survive and to trying to stay alive. So the world brings us traumas in many ways that we can't avoid. If you think about natural disasters, right? Things that we can't avoid. But then we impose upon ourselves so many traumas that are avoidable, right? And they may be traumas perpetuated by one person upon another, right? So that's one example of, of the three kinds of trauma that can overwhelm our coping skills. So, so one kind of acute trauma can be one person imposing that on another, right? So an assault, for example. I mean, there are things that humans don't perpetrate too, if he's a, a car accident or, or a natural disaster, right? But we humans perpetrate a lot of trauma upon other humans in these very acute ways. And we can also do that in ways that are chronic, right? So in ways that are, say, if someone is a certain 
socioeconomic uh, demographic, a certain race, religion, sexual orientation, and then society, the people in society are chronically over time denigrating that person or sending a message that that person is less than, right? Then there's, there's a human imposed trauma through the lens of the chronicity of all of that, right? And trauma can also be vicarious, what we see that other people suffer through, right? I mean, we're, we're fortunate, of course, we have empathy within us so we can relate to other people and help and be helped by them. But that also is what can allow other people's traumas to become very personal and very impactful of us. So, so since there are traumas we just can't avoid just by being alive, we run the risk of that. What we want to do is minimize the traumas, right, that we can avoid, right? These acute, chronic, or vicarious traumas that overwhelm our coping skills leave us different as we move forward. And many, many of them are avoidable. Or if we're suffering from them and now they've changed our, our feelings about self and our orientation to the world, there are things we can do to really to make that better, like in very practical ways. This is not an esoteric you know, kind of concept. And the book is not meant to be that way. It's meant to be very practical and very grounded to like, how do we avoid this? And, and if, or when this happens, how do we get, how do we get better from it? Why did you call it the invisible epidemic? I'm curious. Yeah, you know, that, that was a, a, the working title even before the pandemic, because over the years of doing what I do for a living, what, what you see is that that the trauma impacts someone and, and the person often doesn't know. Right. I mean, how many times have I sat with someone, regardless of what the complaint is, is it depression, is it anxiety, is it, you know, difficulties making certain decisions in life or whatever it may be. Right. When I'm sitting with them. I, as you see over and over again, where often a person is telling me a story of something that's changed in them. So say before that assault, you know, 12 years ago, that person felt like they had a lot to offer the world and, and like people could respond well to them and like they could make their way in the world, even though it wasn't easy. Right. And on the other side, you know, they're, they're telling me they see themselves as worthless. So no one will ever, nothing will ever work out. And no one will ever really care about me. I can never really be, keep myself safe. And oh, and oh, by the way, and they often see that it's their fault. Right. Like there's so much negativity without the person actually knowing that, hey, the trauma is what changed that in me. Right. Like I didn't actually feel that way before. These things that I'm saying is if they're obviously true. Right. I'll never get a good job. I can never stay safe. No one's ever going to love me. Right. They're saying that as if like it's an obvious truth. Right. And it's not only not true, but the person didn't feel that way. They didn't believe that before the trauma. But because trauma, when it overwhelms our coping skills, it evokes a lot of guilt and shame and a desire to try and make some sense of it. And often how we make sense of it is by going to places that really persecute ourselves, right? That really come through the lens of guilt and shame. And we don't even know that. Right. So hence, it's invisible. And people often do transmit this from one person to another. If we don't deal with our own traumas, we are much more likely to pass that along. And like one way it's obvious to see that is if someone has trauma and they're really angry right, about it and they're holding the anger inside and they could be violent and traumatize someone else. Right. Like, OK, we, we, we see that. And that's very, very important. But it can happen in other ways, too. So, for example, 
if I don't deal with my own traumas, I'm very likely to be, say, over-controlling of my kids, right? Because I said then want to protect them. But then what am I doing then? I may narrow their horizons. I give them, you know, an exaggerated sense of fragility, right? So, so even what we're trying to do the right things by others, if we haven't dealt with our own traumas, then in a sense, we don't have a clear lens or a level playing field from which to take care of ourselves, right? And from which to be the people that we, who we want to be to others. So you asked me the question, like, what's success? If it's, you know, if it's my kids being healthy and happy, then I say, well, I better point that, that lens right back at me and say, well, you better take care of yourself and, you know, go difficult places, even if it's not easy to deal with or process my own trauma, because otherwise it takes away my ability to be who I want to be with other people. Is it still possible for someone to be living truly authentic if they've still got trauma baggage, like trauma holding them back? Yeah, so, so the words that use are like trauma baggage, which, which implies to me like unprocessed trauma, right? Like if unprocessed trauma will manipulate us, right? It will use guilt and shame and the cascade of things that come from that negative self-talk, narrowing our own opportunities, right? Making bad decisions, right? Like, like, so if we don't deal with it, then yeah, how are we going to be authentic? We don't have a clear lens, you know, from which to see ourselves. It's sort of like the idea of a fun house mirror, right? If you look at yourself in a fun house mirror, you see a distorted image of self, right? Well, if we don't know that it's a fun house mirror, we don't know that that image is distorted. So, but once, if we start that process of, hey, like, I do want to understand. I don't have to like keep myself away from this. I don't have to protect myself from looking at my own trauma. And this is true for all of us. Because it makes guilt and shame and fear, we hide from it. And then we maintain the funhouse mirror. But if we say, look, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look at what it may do to me, right? I'm going to look at what maybe how it's in me in ways that maybe it's going to take me a while to really work against, right? Once we start looking at that, then we can be authentic because we may be carrying the trauma with us, but we're not carrying, in a sense, the baggage of unprocessed trauma. Does that make it, sound reasonable or yeah? It makes sense to me because it, it also brings up uh, another question that kind of links back to uh, childhood trauma. So how would, do kids know that they have experienced trauma if they don't really, I guess they don't really understand what it really is and how do we help a kid navigate through, oh, yeah. you've experienced trauma. So here's how to, to heal from it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in the book, there, there are two chapters in which I, I interview other people. Uh, one of them is uh, Dr. Darren Richarder, who is who is really a world expert on trauma across generations. Right. And, and I think the conversation with him is so just important to the topic as a whole. And another chapter is an interview of Stephanie von Gutenberg, who is a German activist for child health and child wellness. And that speaks, that chapter speaks a lot to this, that the children are not able to make an attribution. It's hard enough as an adult to understand what's happened, children cannot do that, right? So if you talk with children who say been abused, ultimately there's a mechanism that comes down to it being their fault, right? Because if I were better, you know, then I wouldn't get hurt, like that that kind of thing. Because they don't, the brain mechanisms aren't there to make, you know, an esoteric, oh, that person isn't well, so that person is hurting me and that's not my fault, right? So, so you know, children need 
more help. I mean, we need help as adults and the children certainly need help to understand that, which is another reason, of course, prevention is so, so, so important. And then if trauma has happened, getting the helping resources to the child, right? Because, you know, if, if these thoughts of, well, I'm not good enough to even be safe, right? Or I'm not good enough so other people won't hurt me, right? I mean, you know, imagine trying to carry that forward. I mean, again, if people can, can, can navigate through that to a healthy life, but but we need to help children as much as possible because there's a lot that's set against someone when they're trying to like understand life and go through developmental stages of life, right? With with all of that in their minds. What happens more specifically to a child's mind or brain when they have experienced that level of trauma and what happens to the stages of their development as a result? Well, so, so many things happen in our brains, right? But one of the things that happens in adults and children, and you can see the relevance of this, I think, in adults and more so in children, is, is our brains start getting slanted towards vigilance, right? Towards looking for threats, right? So imagine even in an adult w- without the weight of, say, a, a syndrome that can come from trauma. If you see a new face or new person, then you think like, okay, let me let me kind of size you up, right? Are you smiling at me? Do you seem like you might mean well? You know, to me, we have an interesting conversation, right? It's a different way of sizing up a new person, right? But through the lens of, of trauma, the vigilance mechanisms in the brain just say, hey, let me, if you're a new person, I just want to see, like, are you a threat to me? Are you, are you a threat, right? And like, that's very, very limiting. Right. It's limiting in our ability to ascertain like interesting things about other people. Right. Who could maybe a good friend or, you know, a person who, you know, maybe I'm applying for a job and I want that person to see me at my best. I'm not just I'm looking at them as a threat and they get a different perception of me or somebody who could be good to date or have a relationship with. Like there's a whole breadth of understanding human beings that gets narrowed if the emotional systems in our brain just say, look, look for threats, look for threats, because it's all about survival. Right. Well, that cuts out so much of the richness of life, right? Then that happens in adults and in kids. And imagine now you combine that with with these sort of cognitive constructs of like, oh, I'm not good enough, right? You know, you know, everyone get people mean everyone gets to hurt me because that's like that's just how it is, right? I mean, imagine like now there's there's just these heightened emotions around safety and vulnerability going along with this internal dialogue that's saying all these negative things. And again, like it's hard to navigate life, right? So imagine like how much harder it is with with those things against a person, right? Which again brings me back to it is is not rocket science to understand this and to engage in trauma prevention and, and then also to engage in trauma treatment. And again, I think that comes through. Or I mean for that to come through in the book and certainly the, the chapter of discussion with Stephanie von Gutenberg about childhood trauma, I think really brings that to the forefront. I think prevention and then treatment are two of the key elements because like at the age of six, I was sexually abused. That was a form of trauma. And immediately after it all happened, it kind of like my brain as a way of protected me, uh, kind of put me in like this dazed state. And then I went through the rest of my life. I had like these little moments of flashbacks to what actually happened to me. I didn't fully understand the extent of what just went on. Um, And I don't think a lot of kids really grasp no. that if they're being sexually abused and the no. meanings behind it. But then later on in life, when it finally became revealed to me and the truth was open, then I'm like, oh crap. So I experienced that trauma, but then understanding 
what actually happened was another traumatic event as well for me because I've gone, oh, crap, now what? Now what do I do? I had no idea what I was going to do from from there. Um, and I had no idea what I was going to take to heal from it either because it's that vulnerable right. vulnerable state. Right. But I'm, I'm curious about uh, the different levels. Are, are there any, like if you look at someone that has experienced sexual abuse compared to someone who's experienced PTSD, like someone, uh, a, a, an American soldier, for example, experiencing combat, what have yeah. you, the levels, are there any levels or is that non-existent? Well, how trauma affects a person and whether it, it makes a syndrome where we're different going forward, right, is a combination of, of all sorts of factors. So the severity of the trauma, right, the stage of life at which the trauma was experience, right? Whether there's support or not support around the trauma, sometimes whether there's multiple traumas, you can see what's called the multiple hit hypothesis, where there's multiple traumas, then one that may even seem more mild, you know, shifts that person into a post-trauma syndrome. So there are many, many, many factors, right? But, but what we do kind of understand is it is not helpful or healthy if the, if the person doesn't have the chance to process that. So, so, so I'm, I'm certainly so sorry to, to learn of something that happened to you when you were a child, right? And my, my thought about that is that then it, your brain is trying to protect you, right? It's having, you know, thoughts, it has had feelings and thoughts it doesn't understand, right? And, and a lot of those feelings and thoughts end up clustering around a sense of responsibility for something ununderstood. So in an effort to protect you, your brain actually does the right thing at the time, which is, which is to try and you said to try and distance you from it, right? To, to create a sense of, of, you know, isolating that off somewhere, right? But then it's dulling other things, right, in you as it's doing that. And then when it comes to the fore, it is in a sense, you know, it's traumatic in a sense of now you have to apprehend that, right? But therein lies the opportunity to process it and to make sense of it in a way that, that, that means it's not menacing you anymore. Right. And I think that's what happens when trauma comes to light. And it is very scary. And people worry, I'm going to start crying and I'll never stop or I'm going to go crazy. Like I hear that kind of thing all the time. Right. But but when, but when it comes to the forefront, we have an opportunity to then again gain control and take back control from something that's like off in the corner menacing us. Right. And, and that's where, you know, having it come to the forefront gives us the opportunity to then basically to heal from it or to integrate it into our lives of saying, look, I understand that that thing happened and that thing affected me and that it still in ways affects me, but it's not driving me forward. Like, you know, an analogy I use in the, you know, in the book and in other places, it's not like you're in the backseat of the car, right? And trauma is driving the car. Right. Like, look, I know that it's impacting me, but like because I'm aware of that, it's I'm in the driver's seat and it's not telling me where to go. Right. And and that's where we get if if we we can let it see the light of day and bring some of these healthy mechanisms, which, again, are not rocket science, but are really important to allow us to put words and thoughts and feelings to something that re, that gives us control again and can shift back some of the changes that the, you know, the neuroscience of the modern era tells us those are changes that happen in our brains. Thank you for explaining that. It makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, what have been some of the major or, or challenges that you've had to face uh, regarding recognizing trauma in not just children, but also adults? 
Well, well for me, when, when I came out of my residency training and also when I was in my residency training, but really when I came out of training and then I just started working in the community around me and really seeing all comers, you know, and because, you know, I was a new doctor in practice, I'm seeing all comers. And, and I noticed, I'm like, my goodness, right? That, that like I'm seeing things at the root of so many of the problems that I'm seeing. And one, so one, two, two, two huge factors that I saw across whatever it is I was, was treating. Someone who's like doing pretty well in life, but has, you know, some mild anxiety, someone with sleep disturbance, someone with psychosis, someone with depression, like whatever it was across the board, I would see, look, substances play a role in so many things. Right. And I look, I have to be attuned to substances and to treating substances, whether it's alcohol, it's drugs, right? or I'm not going to be able to help people that I'm seeing because this is underlying so much of what I'm seeing. The other factor, which is, of course, often a factor in the substance use is trauma. So I didn't go looking for trauma, right? I didn't go say, hey, I want to make a career based upon some area of endeavor. Like, you know, I didn't go looking for something. It, it came to me by the observation of saying, look, this is shot through everything that I'm seeing, right? And how am I helping people, right? I can see, oh, that person with depression, I could, I could say, oh, let's give you an antidepressant, right? Or the person with psychosis, let's give you this kind of medicine, that kind of medicine. I could do that, right? But look, if you really want to help people, you go to what is the root of the problem? What is driving that addiction, that depression, those panic attacks, that sleep disturbance? And the answer, not always, but so much of the time was, trauma. So then if you help the person understand that trauma, the person who's not sleeping well now, why? They have intrusive thoughts after trauma. Now they don't feel safe going to sleep or their brain won't shut off. Let's talk about that, right? Or that person who's had some mild depression. Now the depression is much more severe. When did that change, right? So, you know, there's a little bit of just like being a detective, right? And I think good doctors are, we're supposed to be detectives, right? Why is that person coughing, right? Let's go figure that out, right? But in mental health, why is something going on often means, well, let's talk to that person. Let's learn their history. Let's learn what's going on with them so we can pinpoint why that is happening. And so much of the time, that's the route to actually making a difference. You know, I work in a clinic with, say, 20 other people, and we do really good work. And it's not because we're not, it's not because it's miracles, right? We're doing good work because when we're seeing someone, we want to understand that. We're just doing the work, I think, the way that ideally it should be done. And the helping system certainly in the United States are very, very broken and they don't really afford those opportunities. So, you know, are we really helping people if we're just flinging medicines at them and we're not looking to, to really help them understand what's going on inside of themselves? I think the answer is clearly no. And the helping systems around us, which are so broken, if they're going to change to really helping people, have to come back, you know, to a way where we're actually interested in understanding people. You know, otherwise, what are we really doing? certainly in mental health and even in physical health, more than half the complaints, significantly more that present to primary care physicians are based in mental health. Yeah. Right? So you say, well, how are we helping people mentally and physically if we're not trying to understand them? And if we've developed a healthcare system, certainly like we have in America, that absolutely relies on throughput, get that person through to the other side. Right. And like, that's not a recipe for really helping people. And by the way, it costs the systems more. Right. Like it's not it's not cost efficient even. Right. It makes no sense whatsoever, of course, to the human beings. But even if the systems are just really looking at money, which is often the case in the United States, it doesn't make sense there either. 
right? So we've really lost our bearings from in, in these kind of common sense ways of understanding and helping people. Is the current uh, psychiatry and, and the level of study, is it getting better or is it getting worse, do you think? And then I like how you mentioned how person's brain doesn't shut off because that's what I kind of struggle with quite a bit. Sure. Um, sure. I hadn't, didn't recognize that it could be a result of uh, some significant trauma because my brain, the way it works, and this could be another area we could touch on as well, yeah. as well as the first question I just asked. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my brain is like going a million miles an hour most of the time. It is hard for me to actually focus at any one given point in time because I have another thought that just tacks on to the original thought. And it's like, oh, I want to go down there. So it's hard for me to sort of just keep a grips on where I'm at, like being present, if that makes sense. I mean, I do my absolute best and I'm present with you here now. But why is that? Yeah, I'm just curious why that why that is a result of, of trauma and how do we, can we sure. fix that? At all? Like, yeah. Sure. I, I can give you a very clear answer for that. So, so we have trauma raises these vigilance mechanisms in us to very high levels, right? So if the vigilance, if I say, I, I don't feel safe, I, I, I feel vulnerable, then these mechanisms want to like keep safe. So they want to be aware of all sorts of things, right? They want to be looking around us. They want to be gating in new thoughts. It makes it hard to narrow our cognition and like, and just think and focus or cut out some of those thoughts so that we can then rest and the sleep system can like guide us off to bed to sleep, right? But what ends up happening from trauma that's related to all those vigilance mechanisms are higher levels of arousal. And in this case, arousal is not a sexual word. It's like really low arousal could be sleep or coma. High arousal is panic, right? It just gives us a heightened level of arousal. And that's consistent with that vigilance with, hey, I'm more arousal, I'm going to keep myself safe, right? But that's not necessarily a recipe for like peaceful sleep or even peaceful for wakeness, right? Or for, you know, following the thought process linearly one after another. So it could be other things too. There are other things that can do that, right? But a lot of times that's that's really what it is. A lot in this country that gets labeled, oh, it's attention deficit. Like anything a, a person has problem paying attention to, well, that's attention deficit disorder. But like that's not your attention deficit disorder is a, a distinct neurobiological thing, right? Entity, right? That makes attention hard, right? There are many, many things that give attentional problems that are not attention deficit disorder. And way more often than not, the answer to that is trauma and hyperarousal and high levels of vigilance. And you can kind of see how that makes sense, I think, right? And, and this like concept of what's called rumination, which is like, it's a regular word, but it's also a very specific word where the brain doesn't want to shut off and want to kind of keep going in those loops because it's in this highly aroused state. And, and that's often what blocks sleep. And, and of course, oh, the person's having problems sleeping, give them a sleeping medicine, right? That's dumbed down medicine saying person's having a problem sleeping. Why? Are they having a problem sleeping, right? And if the answer is there's these high levels of vigilance and arousal, well, don't give them a medicine that just makes the sleep signaling stronger, right? That's how we get people addicted to sleep medicines, right? If we say, well, let's treat what's going on, which is the, the ruminative process that's coming from trauma, well, then we treat that. And then, and then you have taken care of many, many people. So, oh, they can never go to sleep. They've been on five, 10, 12 sleeping medicines. And like, I see the person and that's true. 
And, and then I can help them get to sleep. And again, there's no magic or rocket science. It's I'm not looking at that as, oh, you can't sleep. Let me give you another sleeping medicine. Like if you put some, you know, some thought into what's going on and like, why aren't they sleeping often? You get to, well, where's the rumination coming from? And maybe you give them medicine targeted towards rumination not sleep while you're working on what's promoting the rumination. That's how you get a resolution of the process. So, so again, a lot of it is kind of common sense and applying thinking in a system that very reflexively wants to say, Oh, you're having problems sleeping. Let me give you a sleeping medicine. Now get out of my office. Cause I've got 19 other people to see, you know, like that's not the way we want to take care of ourselves as a society. Is that, yeah, I know. <laughs> it just kind of feels like a quick fix to a larger problem that doesn't seem to get much attention to these days. That's what I've noticed here, here in Australia, at least. And ultimately, I want to believe that each doctor is doing the very best that they can for each patient. But you're right, they're seeing like so many patients all in one day. You're likely The likelihood of you missing something for one patient is quite high. Uh, right. So how do we, can we... Can we right change that at all or is that just sort of like going to be there for the rest of time yeah we, we need to change the systems right because a lot of times you have good people and people who like i said do want to be helping people right but they're operating in paradigms that 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 dramatically reduce the possibility of helping someone Right. And and it's very hard then to push back against that. Right. Like doctor wants a job to be a doctor. And most people, at least in this country, are working in systems. Right. So, OK, you want a job, you go into the system. The system tells you how to practice in the system. I mean, that's the practice of medicine being taken away from the people to whom it's most important, the doctors and the patients. Right. What does the patient want? How does it how does the doctor want to practice in order to help the patient? Right. So so it's, it's really these this broader awareness and us as a society declaring like this is not okay right i mean we're all either patients or potential patients right i mean i'm somebody's i'm a psychiatrist's patient right and i could be patient of another doctor at any point in time if something happens in me that i need that right so like we're all patients or potential patients so we all have an interest in saying look let's look at these systems because my goodness, they are not helping us. And I see the absurdity of that all the time, the time, the effort, the money often that's spent. And there's like no help done whatsoever because the system is not equipped to help. And we have to say enough is enough. And, and you know, my field is not doing a good job of that. There's discussion every now and then through the field of, oh, should psychiatrists just focus on medicines, right? It's like, I mean, what's next? You know, should we turn ourselves into vending machines, right? Person taps in the systems and medicine comes out. Like, how can we not be thinking about people? And what's amazing is the neuroscience and, and the psychological science, like there's so much more we know, but we're not applying it, right? Because the when the, where the rubber hits the road is actually getting more and more dumbed down by all these pressures for throughput. And like, you know, like I will say at times, polishing the hood when there's something going on in the engine. You know, there's something going on in the engine and you polish the hood, it does kind of look a little better, right? But like, there's no good to that, right? It just looks better from a distance, but like it doesn't perform any better. You haven't solved anything. And likely that problem then just gets worse. And and like, I mean, I think it's very hard to look at the helping systems, at least in the United States. And I think from my understanding of the literature in other countries as well, probably including Australia, but certainly in the United States to look at those systems and to think, how can you think anything other than like, that's really dysfunctional. Yeah. I think there's there has been quite a lot of research into 
the effects that trauma has and also healing strategies nowadays. Yes. And I think yes. that's a great thing, but yes, I do also think that more, there is still more research and there's still more that needs to be done uh, in this field that can make it a lot more beneficial to a wider spread audience. And right. if it's like, what, what can we do as the patients to right. get this message spread even further so that doctors are more aware of it? Do we just go to our doctor and say, Hey, I've, I've experienced trauma. What can you do for me? Well, I, I think we have to not accept like just blatantly not having our needs met, right? I mean, if you go to see someone who's supposed to be in a position to help you and you're talking, say, about, hey, I think like here's the symptoms going on. The same person says, I'm, like, my mood is really, really low and I can't see any hope for the future and I can't sleep and I think it's coming from trauma. Or let's say, the, just as a thought example, the person says that, then you know, you can't be, you can't accept that someone says, oh, okay, well, let me write your prescription. Like, I mean, that's not okay. I mean, there's some obligation, whether it's some healthcare system, right, has assumed an obligation for that person, whether it's providing private insurance in the United States or public insurance in the US or in other places. There's some obligation where you say, that's not okay. I'm not walking away with essentially close to nothing, right? When like I need someone to help me, does it make face validity? Like, is there any even common sense validity that if you come saying, hey, this is what's going on with me, then I think it's because of something traumatic that a pill is going to fix that, right? So we need to then not accept that. And, and even look, I'm all for trauma research, my goodness. I mean, the more, the better, but even if we stop doing research, Right now, I mean, it, it could be years and years and years before before or maybe never if we don't do the right things before we catch up with what we know even now yeah. or what we knew years ago that that is no longer operative in the helping systems. Right. So. So. So, again, I'm all for research, but we're so divorced from standards of care in what we're doing that we're, we're not taking advantage of research that was understood years and years ago. Did you always want to study trauma or was this more of a, a recent thing for you? No, again, it came like when I started realizing even, you know, shortly out of residency that like, oh, there's like, there's you're in, in residency and then shortly out of residency. Well, there's a lot here. And then that developed in me over time as I became more experienced and I worked in different settings and with different people. And, and then I saw like, wow, I've worked with you know, I, I've worked in, you know, clinics for people without homes who are trying to make a better life for themselves. I've worked in nursing homes. I've worked with people who are socioeconomically, you know, in the highest strata, like in everything in between. And what I see is the commonality of the problems that afflict us, which is why, you know, really core principle in the book is that, you know, that I've seen one problem, you know, one thing, right, be the cause of so many of these problems, which, which is like, that's a good thing in a sense of like, we can understand that thing and go after it. I mean, you know, no one wants to think, oh, I see a thousand problems with a thousand different causes, right? I may see a thousand problems with a thousand different symptom profiles if you really look, drill in on it. But but maybe, you know, the, the cause across a thousand of them, maybe across 600,000 or, or seven or something like is is trauma. Well, that's in a way that that's very optimistic in a sense. Well, let's understand trauma and go after that. And we help six, seven hundred people of those thousand. What has been, Dr. Conti, for you, what has been your most vulnerable moment when it comes to dealing with trauma? Have you experienced your own former traumas in the past? Oh, yes. And I do. I write the, the, the I write about my 
own trauma in the book, right? And I think the reason I, I've done that is, is I think it it's compelling, I think, I hope, to see that like a person who's talking about something from some place of expertise, okay, I'm a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, I have you know, experience in, you know, in, in doing this kind of work, to see, look, I, I'm in the same soup as everyone else, right? And I write about that in the book, and I've had some very significant traumas. I, you know, I write about my, my brother, you know, choosing to end his own life by suicide, you know, much earlier in my life, and how that impacted me. And, and like, part of how I see this is I see what happened in me after that, right? And I saw that I thought of myself in a different way and I felt ashamed of it because I should have known, I should have seen like the things people say to themselves. And then like my life became less healthy and, and, you know, was through helping resources around me, you know, good people who supported me. And then I went and I got some therapy that I was able to get my life on track. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm writing about what I've seen through the lens of my life, which is some of that is sure me being a, a, a clinician, right? But it's also me being a person and a friend and a family member. And like, it's all people and there are different boundaries and different relationships, but there's just people in my life, whether I'm sitting on the other side of a, you know, a desk and being a doctor or I'm, you know, spending time back where I grew up with family. It's, you know, I, so it all comes through the lens of what I've seen in my life and including very acutely um, and, and at times very distressingly and even dangerously in my own life. I've experienced I guess one thing for the sexual abuse, that level of shame. And then another level of shame that I experienced was in line with wanting to end my life. And I actually had an attempt uh, to do it, which was another story entirely, but I didn't want to tell anyone like that was my burden, my demon to bear. And I kept it hidden away for such a long time and the idea the the whole concept of shame became my own uh, abusive friend in a way yes um, and I'm, yes how can we help people right now that are listening to this that say look dr conti i've got a ton of shame that is just continuing to build up um got a lot of guilt i feel like i am broken what can i do to help heal from all that yes Yes, the, the, a, a strong theme of the book is that shame is the primary henchman of trauma, right? And, and it is amazing, like even now, in even at doing what I do for a living and writing the book, right? It still amazes me, the reflex of shame in us. Like think about what we're talking about, being sexually abused as a child, losing a, a brother to suicide. And like, what's the reflex feeling? Shame, right? You might think, wow, that... Just doesn't make sense, right? But but the, the, but trauma evokes that in us, right? And whether it makes sense or not, it can drive us to terrible places, right? So looking directly at shame is you know that's a hallmark of coming at trauma because it's shame that keeps that keeps people hiding it, right? I mean, it's it's interesting. It's why I think you know this it's an invisible epidemic and and you know i write about like the evil of trauma i mean imagine something that that can hurt someone badly enough that it changes even their memories right uh, happy memories are tinged some award that was like symbolic of i can go make my way in the world now becomes symbolic well somebody gave me that and i'll never achieve anything more like our memories change our feelings change right and that happens like in a way that we, we then don't know about right and we go 
forward that way, hiding the very thing that has done it to us. I mean, I think you could put together, you know, a group of like a thousand brilliant people and say, think of something more evil. And I'm not sure that that those, that, that that it could be done. Right. So so we need to look at trauma for what it is and for what it does to us. And that means looking at the role of shame in a sense, validating that I understand that your trauma made shame in you. Why? Because that's what it does in human beings. So what's happened in you and in me is a human thing. Right. Aren't we already working against shame? Right. Because trauma wants to say, oh, no, that's not a human. That's a just you thing. Right. And, and that's why it's so shameful and you have to keep it inside. Right. It tells us those lies. Right. And really, it is shared amongst all of us. And when we do not hide it, it does not stay inside of us and drive us in ways that are ill. I mean, I'm, I'm gathering from what you said and, and, you know, from what I said about my own story, talking about trauma, being open about it helps you be healthy. Right. So talk about putting the lie to shame which would say, you can't tell anyone that, right? Well, you can tell everyone, you're telling people on the podcast, right? And, and wait, you're not feeling ashamed of that, you're feeling a sense of empowerment about it, right? As I felt, as I'm like, wait, I'm writing about these traumas in this book that I'm writing. I don't feel ashamed of that, I feel empowered. It puts the lie to trauma that says, you have to hide that. And it says, you know what? I do not have to hide that. And no one else does either. Mm. That's very powerful. Yeah. I totally agree. It, it takes a lot of courage and a brave individual to actually feel comfortable enough with opening up with someone they love and, and trust and respect, but not a lot of people feel right. that love and trust, which I think is, is sad. I know I didn't for quite some time. Right. I, a right. lot of the trauma for me, it brought out a lot of fears and sure, the trauma has also brought out, I think, quite a few problems with addictions later on in life. So there's a lot of areas I know that can be linked back to trauma, but the way I helped to heal was number one, I think talking to someone who I love and and trusted and respected. And then even those little, those moments that I didn't want to open up and I didn't want to share such as the sexual abuse, that was just between me and my family when we discovered the truth of that. And then I just said, hang on a minute. There is incredible power here for me. If someone is going through trauma at the moment, the same kind of thing, what if I was to share what I'm going through, that vulnerable side of things and and say, look, let's help destroy the barrier of shame here. And if you can listen to say, Jay's just an ordinary human being and he's he's going through that and he's okay to share it then wants to say that I can't as well. Like absolutely. It's that that first step that absolutely. not a lot of people want to take, but I just want to encourage people. I'm sure right. Dr. Conti can can uh, reiterate this as well that it's okay to take a first step. And it's probably right. it's probably going to help you in more ways than one. Yes. Yes, because think about what you said. It, it's so hard to talk about it, right? So, so you think is it? There's all these barriers. Right? It's just not easy to talk about it, right? Well, we can make it easier, right? Right? Because because 
it's not okay trauma evokes shame in us but then that plays out in the context of society right and if society tells us to be ashamed by oh we want to look the other way from trauma right we want to pretend that this stuff doesn't happen right i mean that that perpetuates shame right and what we're both doing and you and i are doing it now we're doing it in this talk is we're making it easier for people by saying look i don't feel ashamed you don't feel ashamed we both acknowledge that shame has been in us as what a human reflex right but what's help both of us to be healthier is to not let that shame run us right but but for us to confront that shame and, and i think that's a very powerful message and the more reach a person has like you know, stephanie germanata who is lady gaga who wrote the the forward to to my book you know, she is far more fame and reach than you or i right so by her saying look i've been through trauma too which she says in many many videos not just in the forward to my book then then the people who see her who you know who appropriately feel a sense of admiration for her see like oh like she's not ashamed to talk about that so 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 it's it's the shared humanness of it and again like we, we all can do that even if someone doesn't know you know you know one other person in your life you can share it with that person it doesn't we don't have to have a world platform and it's wonderful that someone like her who has a world platform does that but we can all do that in our own ways like you and i are doing now and like someone can do in their household or in their individual community again we gotta be careful like how we disclose and who we disclose to but we can all work against shame in in various ways and that's very powerful in making it easier to to talk about the things that are going on inside of us yeah it's like what you were saying that level of understanding someone just listening to them yeah and you don't even have to say anything in response you can just right. allow that person right. to talk that's what i found has has been helpful but it's also Absolutely. that level of showing respect at the same right. time like that person is opening up to you right. like don't belittle them or judge them because that's going to make it even worse and it's going to make them just crawl back inside and make right. them feel even more deflated like i don't trust anyone at all like that's what that's the the sheer nature and power that trauma does have especially when we right. like yeah we make it worse for people so yeah i guess in other words right. don't <laughs> right right absolutely in other words don't right and to be really aware of what is the impact of that on people. And now I'll give you an example that, you know, sometimes when I'm working with people clinically, I do actually say things that are helpful, I think, I hope, but, but <laughs> sometimes I, I don't, right? So I can't tell you how many times where a person has come in and said, we're developing a relationship and they're developing trust. And then they talk about their trauma. And I don't say much. I might, like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm eliciting, but I'm not, sometimes don't say anything. I might just go, mm -hmm, come up the way and let them talk. And then we'll say, oh my gosh, you've helped me so much, right? Like, what are they really saying is, well, they don't even realize in the time, like I didn't actually say anything, right? What I did was give them a place and a space to be open, to be honest, and not to take back into them shame, right? Because when a person is doing that, they're, they're looking, they're saying like, am I gonna see something in you that means like, oh, you, you feel different about me now, or you feel ashamed of me, right? And when a person doesn't, doesn't find that or if i you know if i'm sharing back some level of understanding of it or even some level of you know of empathy not just sympathy for it but of empathy for it then there's a shared humanness that, that makes it like it's safe for that person and boy doesn't that just put the lie to trauma that says you can't say that you can't say that you can't say that a hundred thousand times over your life will fall apart you can't say that that's the very thing that we need to do and boy when we start changing that that's how 
you know, we can get, I mean, it takes work over time to really, but we can start getting better very, very quickly just by being able to validate that and to share with someone who reflects back to us. Like it's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah. There's so many great antidotes. I think that you've pointed out for us today, which I think is, it's helpful for me. And I don't know about you, Dr. Conti, but I've just been like talking to someone all of a sudden they haven't said anything. And then I've gone, huh? It's like, it's clicked. It's kind of like a light bulb moment. And I've gone, that makes sense. Thank you for letting me talk about it. Cause then I've figured it out for myself. You didn't have to say anything, but by me talking about it, my brain's processing it the way it needs to process it. Yes. And then it's just like, it all comes together and it's like, yes, that's solid. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Cause we bring different, different, systems in our brain online when we're putting something into words and words someone else is going to hear. Otherwise, things can just go over and over in our head, right? And and it's not kind. People can be very intelligent, very capable, but if we don't put words to things that are distressing, it'll just run over and over again in our head in a very non-productive way. Now we're putting words to it and different brain systems come online and we can then make sense. Like I said, we can solve our own problems because we're talking about it to someone. So that's extremely important. Now add on top of that, the element of like, that that's, that's something that's about trauma and rejecting shame. I mean, you can just see what, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the immense power of that and that we can do a lot of that for each other. Right. In relationships of trust, family, friendship, sometimes therapists, but not always even writing to ourselves. Right. Sometimes that's a first step of of like saying something to oneself or writing to oneself because we are putting it into words and we can get a better handle on our own thoughts. And that could be a step forward. So there's so much we can do. I mean, this is a in, in my view, which I feel very strongly about. It's a gigantic problem. And I think the data tells us that the trauma and its impacts. But it's a it's a problem we can come at that actually has some very lovely and very simple way routes of approach. So it is not esoteric. It is not rocket science. That book that I wrote is not an academic book. It's meant to be able to that anyone can pick that up and read it and get something out of it. That's what it's that's what it's written for. And that's why the language is written in that way. The examples that are there, I, I have tried to make very, you know, illustrative of, of the concepts and then their questions to reflect on that. I want it to be a very practical book that anyone can read. And I, personally, I personally love those sort of books. <laughs> I mean, don't get, don't get me wrong. I love um, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps Us Four. That, that was yes. a deep dive for me. I think I've read it twice yes. now. But I love those those practical like mm-hmm. stories that are written incredibly well that my brain just focuses on so much more. I th- I think it's just I get more out of it to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the heavy stuff for me, like yes, I understand it. Yes, I get it. But it takes me forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but give yeah. me give me some yeah. simple things like that's yes. yeah I like that. Um, yes, Dr. Conti, I, I am mindful of your time. I just noticed it. I know we've been talking for a while, which is I've really, really enjoyed. So I've got a couple Thank more you. questions for you, if you don't mind, sure. if you have sure. the time, that is. Um, sure. Do you, is there a particular question regarding trauma that you're still trying to find the answer to? 
Well, there's always more to understand about it, and including how the mind and body connection. I mean, there's a lot of answers I could give to that, but I think the connection between the mind and the body, that how does trauma impact, for example, our immune system functioning, our endocrine system functioning? Um, you know, we understand some things about that, but there's so, so, so much more to understand. And I think that's such a rich area of research and knowing that more than half the complaints that come to primary care doctors are mental health driven, right? I mean, tells you all sorts of things about how the mind affects the body. So I think that's just, that's going to be one of the biggest areas of research and understanding and hopefully also application, right? Going forward. I didn't, yeah, I didn't touch on that. <laughs> Maybe that's a, a, a conversation for another time, but do you, yeah, think, yeah. do you think that trauma is hereditary? And it affects our genes at all? We know this for a fact. The, the, the chapter in the book where I interviewed Darren Richarder really speaks to this. And, you know, it used to be thought that, oh, like trauma impacts someone in the moment, right? So, oh, that one person did something to someone else and it was looked at more through a legal lens. That bad thing happened on that day. Right now, we understand through a lot of people's research, but Darren's research and the trauma lab that he has at Stanford really does, I think, the best job of furthering this that shows that no, no, that trauma can change the genes that person passes on years later. I mean, think of the the incredible breadth of that statement, right? So, so some of Darren's testimony has been, for example, around rape as a tool in warfare. Right. Which was which was viewed as something wrong was done by someone to someone else on that day. Now that thing was done and there may need to be some, you know, some amends. Or so, but, but like that thing is done and over. No, that that trauma affects people across their lifespan. It's intergenerational. And it actually we know the scientific facts are there through the through the discipline of epigenetics and the combination of epigenetics and trauma research that you can turn genes on or off. And the the transmission of genes, what is active in the in the child is affected even years later. I mean, if, if one had said that not that long ago, people would have thought like, it's crazy. He's changing the genes years later. How could that be? Well, it's true. So it's undoubtedly intergenerational. It's intergenerational from psychological factors, sociological factors, and neurobiological and genetic factors as well. And that means there's nothing more that puts the stamp of validity that like, this is important it's that we, we trauma now can affect children that aren't going to be born for a decade or two. That is crazy. Amazing. That is honestly insane to think about. <laughs> yeah. That's just got wow, my brain. Right? Yeah. Wow factor right there. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. realize that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just learned something there, but Dr. Conzi, where do you want people to get a copy of your book the most and connect with you? So the, when it's available through a lot of places that one can buy, just buy books, like Amazon has it, um, the, right, it will be released in the United Kingdom. And that may be, you know, I'm not sure what would be best access through, through Australia, right? It may be United Kingdom resources, but there's a website that's just www. And then it's DR, so for doctor, and then Paul Conti. So DR, then P-A-U-L, my first name, and C-O-N-T-I.com. And it's got a little bit more about me in the book, but there are links there of where to get the book and it can be gotten on tape or gotten in hard copy. And again, it's, I'm not sure exactly yet. We don't know what the release date will be, but it'll be released in the United Kingdom as well within the coming few months. 
Well, I for one can't wait to get my hands on a copy of the book. Things in Australia do take a while to to arrive these days. That is, Thank you. <laughs> but I'll, I'll make Hopefully sure that'll that everyone, change too soon. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But I'll make sure that everyone knows where to get a copy of your book, Doctor Conti. You. My final question for you: This is my all-time favorite question. I love asking everyone at the end okay. of all my conversations. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow. Well, I kind of know the answer. I, I, I would want it to reflect resilience, perseverance, right? Someone who did what they could with what they got, you know, right? Who who worked hard to, to try and make life better around them. You know, I mean, obviously not, no one is perfect, right? But but we can see when people are well-meaning and try and use what's theirs in a perseverant and resilient way to try and have a good, live a good life, be good to the people around them and project something more broadly into the world around us that is helping and positive. And that is undoubtedly my my answer to that question. That would make me, it makes me feel wonderful just to think of that thought experiment. And it makes me want to strive more that if I do make, if that does come to pass, that's what I wanted to show. It's a wonderful send-off message, in fact. Dr. Conti, thank you. I just say thank you so much for your time today, everything that you are putting out there into the world. This has been a great conversation from my perspective. I've learned so much. But thank you so much for, for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. It's such a pleasure. I, I so appreciate the, the thought, the enthusiasm, the honesty that, you, that you've put into interviewing me and, and what you've brought to it. And I've really enjoyed it. And I think we got out all the things I would really want to get out. So I thank you for having me on and I thank you for that. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.